today we want to talk a little bit about the holiday and the relationship of, uh, we could say, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, uh, and uh, God um, uh, visiting Mount Sinai and uh, God visiting Mount Zion, uh, we might say, uh, and, uh, in the Brit Chadashah. So you may be familiar with the holiday itself, okay? I'm not going to take the time uh, this morning to read the whole thing, but it's in Leviticus chapter 23, and I'll, just, I'll tell you about it, right? So uh, right after Passover, right after Passover, uh, is what's called the celebration of the early spring harvest, and that uh, would be barley, the barley harvest. And, uh, and so uh, the Israelites, you know, they'd be in Jerusalem for the whole Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Passover, and during that time they would offer up the first fruits, offering up the first fruits of a, uh, you know, of a harvest was a Thanksgiving uh, festival, really, a Thanksgiving for the beginning of the harvest and trusting God for the whole thing and trusting him for, you know, a full uh, harvest. Then the Bible says that after you offer that first fruits, that early spring harvest, that first fruits, then you got to count uh, uh 49 days plus one, literally is what it is. 49 days plus one. Seven weeks plus one day. Make 50 days. Then you come with another offering. This would be the, the late spring harvest. Uh, and this would have been a wheat harvest. Uh, and a series of offerings are offered. But what was most unique about this is that the, lev- the bread would be leavened bread, leavened bread, not unleavened bread, like matzah, right? Unleavened bread and two loaves would be offered as, an, as a wave offering, which literally means they'd be doing this, uh, but as an offering of thanksgiving for this late spring harvest. Now, what's interesting is, of course, uh, we know that Yeshua rose from the dead on that early spring harvest, right? On that first fruits of that barley harvest. That's when he rose from the dead. So this whole period of time has great meaning for us, right? Now, in the Jewish world, the early spring harvest kind of gets swallowed up in the whole holiday of Passover. Uh, But from ancient times, from the days of Yeshua and even before that, in the Jewish world, this later spring harvest had another meaning. Uh, while the temple was standing and, and while there was an ancient Israel, people did bring the late spring harvest. But it was overshadowed by a, by a historical event which came to be understood as having taken place on this 50 days after that early spring harvest. Uh, and uh, remember that uh, over time, the, the date of that early spring harvest became concretized became a specific date. It became, over time, the 16th day of the month of Nisan, okay? And so we would always know when 50 days later is. 50 days later is the sixth day of the Hebrew month of Sivan. So if you were wondering, what is today? Oh, today is, well, today is the day before it, so it's the fifth day of Sivan. But beginning tonight is the sixth day of the Hebrew month of Sivan. And from time immemorial, Jewish tradition has it that that is the day 
that God visited Sinai. That is the day when Israel received uh, the, the Torah. And so over the years of wandering through nations and places, Jewish people became much more urban uh, than farmers. And so the, uh, the understanding of this holiday as the time of receiving the Torah, the time of God visiting Israel at Mount Sinai, became this is what the holiday is, uh, is about. Okay? Uh, and so we need to understand uh, a little bit about Mount Sinai uh, and then understand that as it relates to uh, Yeshua and what it means to, to all of us. Okay, because it really is, uh, has a tremendous meaning uh, uh, for us. So like I said a little while ago, uh, the, the giving of the Torah, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments and all of the laws, was like uh, uh, it, two pictures in the Bible are used for it. One is uh, entering into a covenant relationship with a king uh, and the stipulations of that, uh, of, of that covenant relationship, okay? The king would be the protector of the people. The king would be, uh, you know, show great kindness and benevolence to the, to the people and protection to the people. But the people had a responsibility to uh, be devoted to the king and to live life the way the king desired, right? So you have that picture of the giving of the Torah. The other one is of a, of a marriage, of a husband and a wife. And the giving of the Ten Commandments and the laws is like a marriage contract, like a ketubah, right? Like marriage vows. And isn't that an interesting way to view living out the word of God, you know, in, in that kind of relationship? What we realize is it's all about relationship, right? It's all about relationship with God. God never gave the Torah to just, here's your list. Like, you know, this is like the list on the refrigerator, this is what I want you to do. Now, it, it was never meant to be that kind of, uh, of thing. It's a, it's a way of life, and that is exactly why we call it a Torah way of, uh, way of uh, life. Now, it's interesting that uh, this uh, event uh, of God visiting uh, the mountain, Mount Sinai, and the way it's described with fire and smoke and a cloud and lots of noise. And, uh, you know, it really was this uh, big, big event that it, when you read at the end of the 40 years, that when Moses is recounting this in Deuteronomy in the fourth chapter, he tells them to remember the event. Don't just, not just remember the words that God said, that, that's here too, but remember what happened, Okay. And so when you read in chapter 4 uh, of, uh, of Deuteronomy, uh, you read here, uh, well, we can actually begin, well, read a couple of verses at the beginning of the chapter. And now, O Israel, listen. Now, if you uh, have an ear for uh, Hebrew a little bit, right? When it says, O Israel, listen, right? Maybe you have a different word besides listen. Anybody have hear? Because in Hebrew, it's basically Yisrael Shema. It's supposed to Shema Yisrael, right? Like the, you know how, you know, in the, in the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, here you have Israel, O hear, listen, O Israel. 
to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform in order that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord your God, uh, the God of your fathers, has given you. Okay. Then it says in verse 3, Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor, for all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God, has destroyed them from among you. He's saying, now remember, there's some things you need to remember. Remember that on the journey, God protected you, right? You saw it with your own eyes. Remember it, okay? Then uh, he says this uh, in verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do this in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding. So isn't that interesting? that the, the words that Moses is teaching is called wisdom, the wisdom of God and understanding. That's what I'm teaching you. I'm giving you wisdom, okay? All right. Then he says here uh, in verse 7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that statutes and judgments of righteousness as this whole law, which I am setting before you uh, today. So in verses 6, 7, and 8, what he's saying is these laws, this is wisdom that I'm giving you. This is understanding that I'm giving you. Uh, and uh, that, the, that the nations are going to observe you and they're going to say, wow, what a wise nation. And they're also going to recognize that God is near. And what you have, and it would take me too long to show you this, I could read it in Hebrew, but it's very interesting that in verses, well, it's pretty much written like this in English, it's repeated. In verse 7 and 8, you have, for what great nation is there? And then in verse 8, or what great nation is there? One is that has a God so near, and then who has statutes and judgments. And so there's this like identification between the words that Moses is teaching, the, the, the Torah that Israel received, the, that ketubah, that marriage, uh, uh, those marriage vows, uh, seem to uh, be, in, in a way, uh, uh, a depiction of the very presence of God in their midst. In their midst. And it's very interesting because as time goes on, it becomes quite clear that God reveals himself in their faithfulness uh, to the uh, Torah. The Torah becomes like their lifeline, their lifeline to God. If they're going to experience the presence of God, they need to walk in his ways. If they're going to experience his presence, they need to walk in his ways. Okay? Uh, and from time to time, uh, the, uh, the high priest and the priests uh, would be in the Holy of Holies, and God would visit them. But the people, you know, would be uh, outside of that. Uh, but uh, everyone could experience the presence of God by their uh, walking in his ways. Now, in Jewish uh, tradition, the, uh, uh, the event of the, uh, uh, it's called a theophany, the, the presence of God at Mount Sinai, uh, uh, is uh, very, very important. In fact, uh, in verse 10 of Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says, 
Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Choreb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may uh, let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, that they may teach their children. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, a cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. That's a famous little phrase. The Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. Uh, You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So isn't it interesting? It's not just a bunch of laws. This is the covenant. This is the written document uh, of vows. That this is how you're promising to live. I will always be there for you, but this is how you're promising uh, uh, to live. And when, when you show fidelity to me, of course, when, just like any uh, a marriage relationship, when there's fidelity, when you know, there's trust and, uh, and uh, caring for one another, it, it uh, is, can be sublime. Right? Uh, and that is how Israel's relationship with God was supposed to be. As a king uh, and his people, sublime, and depicted uh, also metaphorically as a husband uh, and a wife. So isn't it interesting? Moses says two things here at the 40 years later. He says, remember the, yeah, the statutes and the judgments, and remember that, that it's your wisdom and it's understanding uh, and it will, uh, it will demonstrate the very presence, the nearness of God. But remember also, like, the fireworks. Remember? You know? Uh, or re- remember the, uh, uh, all the things that, that took place. Why does he want them to remember that? He wants them to remember that because, may I suggest, that remember the wondrous presence of God in your midst. That God came down. In fact, Maimonides, very famous Jewish commentator, a uh, very influential Jewish teacher, uh, noted that Mount Sinai assumes the character of a sanctuary, the character of a sanctuary for the duration of this event. And that the tabernacle, the way the tabernacle functioned, was similar to God at Mount Sinai. That you have a holy of holies, then you have a holy place, and then you have the area where the people could be, right? And at the top of the mountain, Moses is at the top of the mountain, right? Like the holy of holies, you could say, right? Uh, and then there's an intermediate area where the children of Israel could not go. And then down at the bottom, that is where the people could be. And so according to Maimonides, that the purpose of the tabernacle And then later, the purpose of the temple, the purpose of Jewish worship throughout the ages was to always remember this event at Sinai of God being there uh, with the people, of God revealing himself uh, to the the people. You know, from a Jewish point of view, when you uh, do like Jewish apologetics uh, of the reality of God, uh, that you point to Mount Sinai. Look, God is real. Uh, he revealed himself in time, space, history. You had a lot of eyewitnesses uh, who saw him there. 
And, and that's how we know Moses is real and God is real because we have a written uh, account of it. We have eyewitnesses. Uh, and the world was changed uh, as, uh, as a result of it. Uh, and, and so uh, when we look back uh, on this, we see, wow, God visited us. He entered into covenant relationship with us. This is, we're going back and remembering our relationship with the king, our relationship with the husband. And that's why Shavuot is so very, very important. And it, and it serves as the conclusion of the Passover event, right? That's why you're counting days from one to the other. Uh, when we came out of Egypt, we were redeemed, right? Uh, Dayenu, right? It, was, it would have been enough. He, he took us out of Egypt, but then he parted the sea for us, and then he protected us, and he brought us uh, all the way to uh, Mount Sinai and then to the Promised Land. But, but the Mount Sinai event is directly related to the redemption. He redeemed us not so we could do whatever we wanted to do. He redeemed us so that he could be our king. We came from a terrible king who was very oppressive and who took advantage of us and did horrible things to us. And now we have a king who loves us, who is benevolent, whose whole agenda is to care for us. And he has not left us to our own devices to try to figure out, well, what is the best way then for me to live this? Here, here it is. Okay, here, is, here are the vows. Uh, here is the way to live for your good, the, the Bible says. For your good. Live for your good. And when he talks about living and for your good, we don't need to what we call spiritualize these. Like live in heaven after we die or something. Live well is what he's saying. Live well and be fruitful and, and frankly, enjoy life under the kingship of God and in this fantastic marriage relationship, okay? Uh, and, uh, and so, boy, who would say no to that, right? Well, unfortunately, when you read the rest of the Bible, uh, we see that uh, our ancestors did not choose life. They kind of decided to do their own thing. And, and when Moses gets, when Moses gets, to the uh, end of his whole speech here, at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, you, know, you know what he says in chapter 29? He says, when all is said and done, <laughs> in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 29, Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear, because you're not getting it. And this is what's going to happen. You're going to go in the land and you're going to forget all about me. And you're going to attribute to yourselves the ability to make wealth. And, and you're not going to really, you, you might give me lip service, but you're not going to really worship me. You're going to kind of be like everybody else around. And then what I'm going to have to do is discipline you. I'm going to have to scatter you and send you to many nations. But I want you to know it's not the end. Okay? Because I'm doing this, don't get the idea like now I don't love you anymore. I love you, but I have to chastise you. You know, and you're going to wonder, why is this happening to me? And so in the very last verse of Deuteronomy 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So just remember, when this happens, I still love you. And you know what's going to happen? That after you're scattered, you are going to come around. 
You're going to come around. In chapter 30, it says, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, like the good things and the bad things, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind wherever you live, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and all your soul and all that I command you today and your sons, God will restore you from captivity. Okay? And then if you go down to chapter 30 and verse 6, it says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you will live, that you might live. He's saying, in other words, Moses is saying, look, you need something more. You need something more because just having received the, uh, the having the memory of God at Mount Sinai uh, and uh, having these vows to live by evidently is not enough. God has to do a work inside of you. And the, and the day is going to come when he's going to do it. Okay? And of course, later on, the prophets, uh, the prophets talk about this. Right? Two places in particular. One is in Ezekiel in chapter 36. Very quickly, it says uh, here uh, in verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. In other words, when he says, I'll put my spirit within you, he says, I am going to dwell within you. I am going to do like spiritual open heart surgery on you, and you will be motivated you will be excited. You will want to live out the Torah with your heart and your soul, with every bit of you. You're going to want to, and you're going to want to live out this relationship that I promised you so long ago, and that I gave you the tools for so long ago. Jeremiah also uh, talks about this as a promise in the thirty-first chapter. In the thirty-first verse, he says, "Behold, days are coming," declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. See, I was a husband to them. Don't just run by that. I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This was a marriage and you have, uh, you, know, you have just trampled all over it. But I'm not done with you. I'm not going to find somebody else. I'm going to do what it takes for you to come back. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. I'm just going to do this. What a great, unbelievable promise. I'm going to do this because I love you so much. Right? Well, we read lots of other passages about the promise of a king who's going to come, a benevolent king, the king revealing himself, a king who's a descendant of David. And in other passages, uh, like in the second Psalm, Psalm number 2, Psalm 110, in the book of Zechariah, you get this idea that it, who is this descendant of David? Is it like God who's the descendant of David? Or is it a 
man who's a descendant of David, because like in Psalm 2, it's a descendant of David, but it says they'll pay, the nations will pay homage to him. It's an unusual kind of phrase, you know? Uh, and then in Zechariah chapter 14, all the nations are going to come to Jerusalem and worship the king. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Didn't we uh, learn that that's not a good thing for us to do? Like worship people and stuff, right? But see, because this king is going to be a different kind of descendant of David. So, to make a long story short, when Yeshua comes, he's a descendant of David, and he's a very different kind of a descendant uh, of, uh, of David. And it's, a, it's very interesting that uh, in one place in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 12, Yeshua kind of chastises the scribes who are actually giving him a compliment. Always watch out for compliments. Okay? So it's kind of interesting uh, what he says uh, here in Mark uh, chapter 12 in verse 35. Okay? Uh, oh, oh, oh. Yes, for the Gospel of Mark, we've got to turn to Mark. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. There we go. Mark chapter 12 and verse 35. I was just discussing this this week with someone. Okay, so it says here, And Yeshua answered, uh, answering, began to say as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? See, this is so great the way he does this, right? Because of course the Messiah is the son of David. So he piques their curiosity, right? Uh, how is it that the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says in the Ruach, says by the power of God. Now he's going to quote the beginning of Psalm 110, okay? Which is the most often quoted passage in the entire New Covenant, is Psalm 110 in verse 1. It tells you something about how important it is, okay? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make my enemies until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. David himself calls him Lord. And so in what sense is he his son? So in other words, he, he, you know, he raises this question. If, David, if David's descendant is going to sit on the throne, how does, why does David call his descendant? He doesn't call him son. He calls him Lord. Okay? What Yeshua is doing here is saying that uh, your understanding of the nature of the Messiah, who the Messiah is going to be, is inadequate. The Messiah is not only a son of David, but the Messiah is indeed the Lord of David. And uh, this is one of those passages where Yeshua self-identifies a little bit of who he is, that he is the Messianic king. He is indeed the one who uh, ultimately sits at the right hand of God, the right hand of the Father, okay? Now, Yeshua also says, if, uh, and it's convenient in, in Mark, in the 10th uh, uh, chapter, it's in the same neighborhood, in verse 33, he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And uh, they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. 
And then if we move uh, farther down to verse 45, there in uh, Mark chapter 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. So here Yeshua understands that his death is significant, right? He's going to die, he's going to be raised again, and he's going to also sit at the right hand of God, okay? Uh, And so after Yeshua died and rose from the dead, he taught his disciples for 40 days, and then sure enough, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. His death and resurrection, of course, were necessary to pay the price for our sins and to conquer sin and death. But his resurrection was not the end of the story. And oftentimes we jump from he rose from the dead and now we relate to him via the the Holy Spirit. But it's so important for us to understand that he does not take the throne of his kingship until he, as resurrected humanity, ascends to the right hand of the Father. That event of ascending, of going up, is absolutely crucial to everything, to everything. If, if he died for our sins and rose from the dead, he would still be in one place at one time, you know? Uh, and uh, we would not be empowered uh, to live in his presence until... The day comes when there would be the consummation of everything. But Yeshua's destiny was not simply to become humanity and to be resurrected and just walk, walk on the earth as forever as uh, the resurrected Messiah. But his destiny was to ascend to the right hand uh, of the Father uh, to take his place as our king as our glorified king of Israel and the world. And this has tremendous ramifications for everything in our lives. As Messiah followers, it's everything, okay? So in our Haftorah portion, I won't repeat it, of course, in Acts chapter uh, 2, verses 1 to 13, I'm not even going to, okay. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, you read about smoke and fire I, you know, and loud noises, and, and it sounds kind of like Mount Sinai, right? It sounds kind of like Mount Sinai. You know why it sounds kind of like Mount Sinai? Because it's supposed to. It's supposed to. Because this is another Sinai event, but it's at Mount Zion. Now, the question is, you know, where did this take place? Well, nobody knows for sure, but you know how it is. People have their, their own uh, views on it. You know, were they in the upper room? Did they leave the upper room, go to another place? Uh, some say uh, it is, uh, where's the, right, right where Dawn goes to school, right? Where outside the Zion Gate, uh, that, that, that the upper room was right there, was, was, was you know, and then, and then people came from the temple, which was a little farther down the road a piece, and came and, and heard it and saw it and wanted to know what was going on. Other people would say that it was around the temple, that they were, you know, that they were in the temple environments. That's not... The, it was there. Like when we go to Israel, when we go to Israel and, we, and people say, people like to say, this is where Yeshua did this. And this is where, we know a few of those places. Okay, we know a few of them. A lot of them are still way, way down below the ground. <laughs> okay, all right. But, but what we have is, it was here 
you know? It was here. Whether it was here or it was like right over there, right? You know, it wasn't in Africa, it wasn't in Asia, it wasn't in Europe, okay? Nor was it at Times Square, uh, uh, you know? Uh, nor was it, uh, well, I could keep going on that, but I won't. Okay, uh, uh, so it, it was there, and this great event happened, and God visited Israel once again in this truly dynamic kind of way. And isn't it interesting, Yeshua ascends, kind of like Moses, you know? Yeshua ascends, and now Yeshua is in the cloud, and Yeshua is, uh, you know, is there. But not like Moses, who came down and the glory was depleting. Yeshua stays there, and he doesn't uh, put the law on tablets, but he pours out the Ruach HaKodesh. He pours out the Spirit of God, which is his presence. This is how we relate to him. And so it's a lot of things. The pouring out of the Ruach, the pouring out of the Spirit, is God placing the Torah on our hearts. Uh, it is uh, God empowering us to live godly. Uh, it is the event in which we now can forever live in his presence. The river runs two ways. He is now in our midst, in us, in our presence. And here we are the body of Messiah. He dwells here because we dwell in him. The pouring out of the Ruach means that we are now living with him in heavenly places. That, that our presence forever is with him right there at the right hand of the Father. Okay? And that is, that is uh, where our citizenship is. That is where our life is hidden uh, in uh, the uh, Messiah. Okay? So there are passages, uh, for example, where Yeshua said that this would take place. And they're not always in the likeliest of places. In John chapter 14, the Gospel of John, in chapter 14, Yeshua says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. May I suggest that this is inaugurated right there in Acts chapter 2. That he goes to the right hand of the Father and via the Holy Spirit, he visits us, he takes us to himself and that we forever dwell with him in his midst. And that the work that we do in this world is what he's doing. He's the one who's doing it. There are um, a lot of passages uh, in the book of Acts, and thankfully we will be um, uh, looking at Acts uh, very soon. And what we'll see is that in the, the way that Luke writes Acts, we see it is Yeshua who heals. It is Yeshua who gathers disciples. It is Yeshua is the one, uh, you know, at the beginning of, uh, of all of this, uh, Peter heals someone. It's at the beginning of chapter 3. Heals a lame man. And everyone is like, they want to worship Peter. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Let me explain to you what's, what's happening. 
And he says, it is the risen Messiah, the one whom you crucified. He is the one who's doing this work. He is alive. And that is why in Acts chapter 2 and 3, we don't have time to, I don't have time to read them. In Acts chapter 2 and 3, he says, the one whom you crucified. You know how he says that over and over again? The one whom you crucified. The one whom you crucified. You know what he's, he's not doing there? He's not like laying on them. The, you killed him. No. He wants them to remember that he was dead. He wants them to remember, remember you crucified him? Remember he was crucified? He's alive. He's alive. And his dynamic presence is within, within the entire body of Messiah. He is indeed alive. And that is because of the ascension that he rose uh, from uh, the dead. The pouring out of the Spirit is the way that humanity now experiences covenant relationship. In other words, uh, at Sinai, God was there. The people were afraid. Moses goes up. And then to, to, to remember this event, there's the tabernacle and there's the temple. And so we, we kind of have to try to remember it. Now, God has visited in a new and living way so that we can have that experience when, it, when we embrace the Lord. We're there. We're in his presence always and forevermore in whatever situation we may be. Now via the Ruach, we are able to be restored to God. The Torah is within us. That's called a circumcised heart. The pouring out of the Spirit is the presence of God dwelling within us as, uh, as is promised uh, by, the, uh, by the prophet Joel, which we read about in the second chapter of, uh, of Acts. And I just wanted to, let me just turn to a couple of places uh, where this really becomes very real in our lives. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews in uh, chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Boy, I'm so glad that I'm going to be starting a series on Acts. <laughs> I won't feel so bad. Okay. Uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, okay, in verse 15. Now, Yeshua is sitting at that right hand of the Father. He's not only our king, but he's also our high priest. For it says in Psalm 110 that he's, he is a priest, right, uh, in the priesthood of Melchizedek. Okay, so he is our high, he is our king, and he is our high priest. And so it says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted uh, in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the 10th chapter of uh, Hebrews, we read in verse 19, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way which he inaugurated through the veil that is his flesh, since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience. You know, in another place, in the seventh chapter of uh, Hebrews, in the 25th verse, hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Listen, 
since he is always, he always lives to make intercession for us. All of this happens because he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he has invited us to live there with him. That's where we live. What does it mean that he makes intercession? We're, we're already saved by the blood of the Lamb. But he always is our representative, you might say. He always, always, he's, he prays for us and he always assures that when we sin, and we confess our sins, that our sins are, are, for, are forgiven and, and gone. Not only that, but he is always with us in every situation that we may be in, that we may be in. We experience that the most when our eyes are not dwelling on things below, but on what's above. And you know, it's interesting, Paul had an the Apostle Paul had an experience, right, where he sees Yeshua at the right hand of the Father. And it's the game changer of game changers. Not only does he come to know the Lord, but he realizes that's where he lives. And so no matter what happens, no matter how bad it is, that's where he lives. And that's how he is able to overcome and that's why he says, whatever I am in this life is nothing compared to the glory of God. Because he has seen it. He has saw a glimpse of it. And so did Stephen when he died. When we read in uh, the book of uh, Philippians in the second chapter, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. At the name of Yeshua every knee should bow and those who are in heaven and those under the earth that every tongue should confess that Yeshua the Messiah is Lord uh, to the glory of God and the, of God the Father. This is the ascension. This is him sitting at the right hand. This is, he is Lord and Messiah. He is our Messiah, but he is Lord. And he, and, uh, as a result of all of that, this is how he can be every, how he's, he's with us wherever we may be because he's at the right hand of the Father. This is how we're empowered to live godly. This is how we can enter into that holy place. And, you know, it goes, uh, it certainly goes uh, on and on. So the question for us is we need to rejoice in this great truth. And there's a lot more to say about it, believe me. Okay? Uh, but we need to rejoice in this great truth. We need to dwell in this great truth and realize that it is indeed a truth. It is not just something we believe. Right? It is real. It is real. Yeshua is really real, and we really dwell in him. And I hope that whatever we may be going through in our life, you know, it's hard. Life is hard. Life is difficult, right? And just saying, you know, saying, hey, remember this, it doesn't necessarily take away pain or a series of really difficult circumstances, right? But we can, we can be encouraged and know that this is not all there is. That we have an anchor in those choppy waters of great hope. And as we live there, hopefully by dwelling there, we're able to navigate those difficult periods in our lives. You know, Yeshua, nor Paul, nor any of them ever minimized the sufferings of people. Never. But in the suffering, Yeshua suffered, right? He identifies in that suffering, in our suffering, right? He knows what it's about. And hopefully we find encouragement and we can find uh, uh, 
mercy, grace, loving kindness, the loving kindness of God, the chesed of God in the midst of great heartache and whatever else aches. And just know that we are never alone. And by the fact that we are his body, he dwells within us, right? We're there, he's here, right? It's like, it's like you're going back to Eden where heaven and earth were in the same place, right? That, that means that, that when we are dwelling in the midst of the body of Messiah, that is Yeshua's presence. And we need to live there because that's where we, Lord willing, are getting encouraging words, hugs, uh, you know, just uh, uh, pep talks, you know, that, that consider it as coming indeed from the Lord. So the question we want to ask ourselves and be reminded of on this holiday is not only to remember the historical event, which these, these two great movements, these two great moments where God broke into this world and changed it forever. One is at Sinai, and the other one is at Zion, right? Uh, that we need to ask ourselves, where do I live? Where do I live? Am I one of those people that I, I, I believe in? I've, I've received him, and I'm just living down here. Life is hard, and I'm praying that God just helps me get through it. That's one way to live. The other way is, I'm down here, I'm dealing with things, but my citizenship is in heaven, and I dwell in him, you know? And I am just going to keep my eye on the prize. And through that, I will be able to endure the difficulty. And I won't lose hope, you know? And I won't be in despair and discouraged. And so, let's pray. Lord uh, God, uh, thank you, God, that uh, you have broken into this world. And thank you, Lord, that you have opened our eyes and that we have been the recipients of your grace and your mercy. And that we don't have to leave Mount Zion and just remember what you did there, but we can have it always. Lord, and I pray, God, that we would truly live that kind of empowered life and that for us it would indeed be an abundant life. Lord, for apart from you we can do nothing, but in you we can experience great joy and peace and life. Whatever it is we're experiencing, Lord, may we remember who we are in you. And thank you, Lord. We do pray, Lord, as your spirit has been poured out, God, we pray that more and more people in this world would recognize it and that the world would indeed be turned upside down. And that is the work that you've called us to do, to be occupied until you come. And we look forward to that day, Lord, when you will again, just like you went up into that cloud, we look forward to that day when you're going to come down out of that cloud, Lord, and be king in this world. God, and thank you that we can live that future today. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen.